0: Hi, my name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Molly Keck. And we are with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. Welcome back to Bugs by the Yard. This week, we are talking about thrips which can definitely be an insect that can become a problem in the summertime thrips are always thrips whether it is one thrips that you're talking about or if you're talking about 932 it's still going to be thrips so it's it's like one of those weird words but they are going to be in the order thysinoptera and (laughs) when i was doing my research on this I found out that some people call these thunderbugs.
1: <laughs> thunderbugs. What's that come from?
0: I have never heard that before. Yeah. I don't even know why. I mean, it it didn't really explain where that came from, or at least not that I could find.
2: You think it has maybe something to do with there's more of them after a rain? I don't I'm know. stretching. I'm stretching because yeah, they're not maybe. Maybe. They're not- big and thunderous or anything like that oh and apparently
0: a thunderbug is an nhl mascot huh (laughs) who knew i wonder if it's i wonder if their thunderbug is a a thrips or if it's like some random weird something or other but anyway (laughs) i digress (laughs) so Thrips are going to be small insects. And when I say small, I, I mean like small, like one to what, three millimeters. I mean, they're tiny. And typically when I tell people if they're going to look for them in the landscape, I tell them to take a light colored piece of paper And then tap their suspected infested plant over top of that. And then look for dashed lines running around on the paper. And if they see those, then those are going to be the thrips. So very, 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 very small. I think worldwide, there is over 4,500 species worldwide. But North America is going to have about 700 species. So still a lot of species, but not as many as we could have and the majority of thrips are going to feed on plants, but there are some that are predators. And again, while I'm researching to talk about these today, there are these ones that I sometimes see in the garden with the other thrips that are on the plants, feeding on the plants, those dark, dark brown to black ones. Have you guys ever seen those? I hope, yeah.
1: Thinking, but...
0: those ones tend to be the the ones that are predators so they're feeding on the other thrips but predaceous thrips can feed on mites and then various small insects of course including other thrips brian why don't you describe how they look
1: Thysanoptera fringe thysano fringe uh, is what that comes from. And then Optera, anytime you see P T E R A, we've probably discussed that before. That's referring to the wings or the wing shaped. So Thyssenoptera, fringe winged. If you take a look at thrips, they have a very long, like tube like body. And then their wings uh, look like little mini feathers, like they're covered in these dense seedy, these dense hairs, very elongated. They're Kind of equal shaped, I would say. Have y'all noticed like a difference in the wing shapes? Hind wings versus forewing?
0: I haven't. I agree with you that I think that it looks like somebody just took like little tiny feathers and jabbed it into their body.
1: Yeah, like they're the perfect little they honestly they look so delicate, like how can they really fly, which I don't think they are considered great flyers.
0: I think they use more wind currents than actively flying.
1: Which is probably how they're able to kind of spread through and and infest multiple plants in an area. Or I'm thinking of, I guess, people in the urban setting. Maybe you're going to see them more on your roses.
2: Hibiscus.
1: Hibiscus, yeah. And then, you know, of course, the agricultural setting, but.
2: And also in lots of wildflowers or like when you're in spring and everything's blooming and there's a ton of pollen, because I think a bunch of species will, are pollen feeders as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so then yes. they just, you know, pollen is protein. So they've got lots of protein to be popping out, lots of babies and laying eggs. And when you have like a field or a pasture nearby or, you know, an, an easement or something that kind of has native stuff growing, when they mow that, that's when they kind of start picking up through the air and people they'll move into your good plants, but also they land on you. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But that's usually when people don't like them so much.
1: Not that you're going to get close enough to really see their eyes and their mouth parts. (laughs) If you do, great. Are their eyes like notoriously kind of raspberry looking? I'm I'm imagining this.
0: Yeah. And they they have fairly substantial eyes. I mean they They usually stand out like you can definitely see them because a lot of the thrips are going to be kind of that, I don't know, kind of yellowish tan color. And then they have those really dark eyes and it makes it really easy to see and they're large.
1: And then we always in, oh gosh, undergrad, grad school, we refer to them as lefties. Lefties? Yeah, lefties with their mouth parts. So Ah, how I... They're, they're like a punch and suck insect. So they use the left mandible, which is more prominent. Uh, I guess the right mandible is reduced and vestigial punch kind of into the cells of the plant and then like lap up the juices. That's how I understand it. Do you guys have anything to add to that?
0: No, one mandible and yeah, that's the stab and yeah.
1: They're weird. One mandible, big eyes, always plural, never one thrip, always one thrips.
0: And you know, if you look at them, like, not that normal people are ever going to do this, but <laughs> if you if you look at thrips underneath like a microscope or uh, like a good hand lens with a good magnifier or something, their thorax is really, really weird looking. Because you know how most insect thoraxes are going to be kind of like all fused together. I mean, there's three sections to the thorax and there's a pair of legs on each section of the thorax. But with thrips, theirs is kind of got this weird constriction after the first section of the thorax and then the second and third section is fused. And it just, it looks very weird,
1: Yeah, like it wants to have an elongated prothorax, kind of like a yeah, yeah. It's like a stunted, I don't know, praying mantid or something. But yeah. Yeah.
0: It's just, it's very strange looking, but speaking of which, I mean, they're, they're not closely related to praying mantids. Don't even think that that's the case. They are closely related to the hemiptera, which are things like stink bugs and leaf footed bugs. And if this is the modern hemiptera, then we also have like aphids and white flies and all that stuff in there. And then also the sacodia, which are the bark lice and the book lice stuff, which that that in my brain makes sense. Because if you think about what a thrips looks like and you think about what like book lice and bark lice look like, I can see that because they kind of look pudgier without the wings when we're talking about book lice. But that works in my brain. But like Molly mentioned earlier, they are going to feed on pollen and they also can feed on other plant tissues. It all depends on the species that you're dealing with or the season, or there's multiple things that play into it. So if you have a bunch of thrips, like if you go out and tap on a plant and you see a bunch of thrips on your plant and you don't necessarily have to panic. This is one of those where I tell people, you can't just categorize something as good or bad, because like I mentioned already, there are thrips that will feed on plants, but then there are also predatory thrips, but then there could also be thrips that are feeding on the pollen of the plant and they're not causing damage. And so if you have thrips on the plant, but you're not seeing damage, then I really wouldn't be concerned about it. So it's, again, you have to think about what the insect is doing as well as where it is located. And so only be really concerned if it's causing some amount of damage that you're concerned about. So the interesting thing that I found also in my research, because I don't remember learning this in taxonomy, many of the thrips species are parthenogenetic did you guys know that?
1: I I was reading about that. Uh,
0: Maybe they said something, but I did not know that at all. And so for those of you that maybe it's been a hot minute since you had a biology class, if something is parthenogenetic, that essentially means that they don't have to mate to have offspring. So it's kind of like asexual reproduction. So that could, in my opinion, lead to populations becoming larger quick, more quickly because they don't have to find a mate to produce offspring. So that can be something that can contribute to things.
2: Yeah, and I guess that would also make sense how they can become resistant really quickly to using the same type of insecticide over and over again, especially in roses. Yes, yes.
0: And I think a lot of people, when they do control, especially on roses, you go there and you get the the specific pesticide that has rose on it. And so you're using that over and over and over again. And then it just stops working. And that, that would be why, because you're not switching things up. So Brian mentioned earlier that the thrips are going to have fringed wings, and that's where the whole and the patera comes in, so Thysinoptera. But adults don't necessarily always have wings. So whether the thrips has wings or not is going to be dependent upon the species that you're dealing with, or if it's an immature, because the immatures do not have wings. But again, it's dependent upon what stage you see. And plus, again, I don't expect the average homeowner to be looking that closely at their thrips that they're going to be able to see if it has wings or it doesn't have wings. And I certainly don't expect you to figure out what species you have. I mean, that's... Not even really something that I do, because if there's damage on my plant from thrips or if there's a virus or something that the plant has because they can transfer or vector viruses to plants, then I would manage something. But otherwise, I wouldn't really worry about it. So thysanoptera are hemi which means that they have an incomplete life cycle. But they are one of those insects that have a weird hemi-metabolist life cycle where some people will say that they have an egg nymph adult stage, but others will say that they have egg larva and then they have this weird kind of, I don't even know, pupil stage, but it's not really a pupil stage. <laughs> and
1: maybe. then the adult. Pardon? I said free pupil maybe. I was just reading one of, our publications and I came across pre pupil and pupil stages and I got confused, Yeah, but it, you're going to explain this right now. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe,
1: <laughs> well, I also have another question, which okay. we can potentially cut out. So on our publication. Okay. Well, I guess the question is, is true parthenogenesis, the cloning, A form of reproduction where the females produce exact clones of themselves, something like an aphid, for example, or I think some walking sticks will do this. But then on our publication, it kind of looks like it's opposite of what I've ever learned. Thrips can reproduce without mating, mated females will produce males and females, and then the unmated females produce only males. Is that a different form? Is that just like the lack of the sex chromosome in the female.
2: I think that's just a separate thing. Like they, they're parthenogenic, but then they can do that. And I can't, can't remember what that's called, but bees do that where only the fertilized eggs turn into females and unfertilized are males.
1: Right. Right.
2: But it's not parthenogenesis.
1: Glad I could clear that up. Cause I, I was confused for a second.
2: I, th- I think it's two separate things that they smush together in
1: one. So sentence. just like another form of asexual reproduction.
2: Okay, so
0: let me, let me see if I can explain this whole like pre pupae pupy garbage. <laughs> it's just, it's so weird. So from the way that I understand it, it's not a true pupa because it's not developing inside of that pupal case. There's no transformation or whatnot. So if you think about a caterpillar chrysalis, which is a pupa, it's going from a caterpillar into a butterfly. And so there's a lot of stuff going on in there that we don't necessarily see. But with the thrips, While it's in this little, I mean, some of them do actually spin a silken cocoon to do this little transformation pupil, whatever pre-pupa thing, they're not changing their body structure like a a caterpillar or a grub into a beetle or something like that. Does that make sense?
1: (laughs) I think that makes sense to me. I,
0: I don't feel like I'm explaining it very
1: well. <laughs> I kind of found another um well, I can we equate it to maybe the aquatic hemimetabolous insects or something. Yeah,
0: they, they are hemi so it's kind of it's not it's not a true pupil stage. It's kind of this weird in-between purgatory thing going on where they're I, I don't.
1: I found another word, a pro-nymph-nymph, which is strange. Uh,
0: pro-nymph-nymph?
1: Yeah, okay. so instead of the like larva-pupil adult, you'll have a pro-nymph, a nymph, and then the adult. And I guess this nymphal stage that, that weird, I guess, pre-pupil.
0: So I guess why some people call it a pupa or a pre-pupa or something like that is because it is a non-feeding, non-moving stage, very similar to pupil stages in other types of insects. But essentially all that is happening with the thrips is that they are obviously becoming sexually mature, so they're going to have the genitalia formed and then they also are going to have the, the wings formed at that point if they have wings in the adult stage. So it's not a true pupil stage.
1: And this usually occurs down in the soil?
0: Yes. So eggs are laid usually on the plant, the insects, the nymphs and adults are of course on the plant. And then pupation typically occurs, pupation or whatever you want to call it, occurs either in the soil or it could be in like a a crevice or something or like a nook or something of the plant but usually for the most part it happens in the soil ooh here hold on a minute i have i have some fancy words for the stuff okay so when we were talking about the we're going to go back we're jumping back to the parthenogenesis so again that is reproducing without fertilization so there are two words, and I, I I know these words, I remember these words, but I could not think of them. So arenotoki is where unfertilized eggs develop into males. And then we have thelotoky, and that is essentially the absence of mating. And so the production of female offspring and that that's what aphids do so they're producing all females
1: oh my gosh I remember these words you say yeah I
0: know I'm like oh yeah that's what that word is yes
1: because yeah. we would argue about the pronunciation like tomato tomato so you say thilatoki right
0: that's how I say it I so when I first that's read how it anybody I went, else says it
1: no I, I would say thilatoki <laughs> I think no, the is correct. <laughs> I was mispronouncing it for the longest time, but I think we all do that in the intro.
0: Do not go by the way that I am saying it because it could be completely wrong. That is the whizzy pronunciation. That does not mean that it is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> so like I mentioned way at the beginning, there are a large number of thrips that can be problematic on various plants. Bryant mentioned roses, also hibiscus. And that's kind of within within a like home landscape situation. That's usually where people find them. I know that's where I find them. I find them on my roses all the time.
1: I was reading some more of just like flowers, chrysanthemums and patience. That may be planted in the landscape setting
0: they can also get on vegetables and fruits and things like that and they are capable of vectoring different plant diseases usually viruses of some sort and a a really common one that they are known for transferring or vectoring is tomato spotted wilt virus which is probably the one that is going to be most familiar with the majority of our listeners. It can get kind of sketchy if you have that on your tomatoes, like you see that, and then you see that you have thrips, you might want to rip out those plants. And then you can, obviously you don't want to compost it because then it's going to still be in the environment, but you're going to want to take out those plants and dispose of them and get rid of them.
2: I think they're also a major pest on onions. So they're not going after the flower or anything because there isn't one, but you, you know, the little, you think of like a green onion sprouting up and they'll leave like, a it's almost like little dead circles or brown yellowed circles all throughout that deal. And it's still edible, it's just not pretty. Yeah,
0: that's the thing I find with thrips. It's like, depending on which ones you're dealing with, they're going to do different types of damage and possibly vector different things because there are you know western flower thrips and there's chili thrips and there's i don't even know i can't even think of some of them i mean but there are ones that will focus more on feeding on flowers whereas other ones will feed on more fruits or vegetables and things like that and just just so people know there are some species of thrips that are known to bite humans so it's not that they are they're not sucking your blood or you know trying to get skin cells or something like chiggers or anything like that that we've covered in the past they are just kind of biting you because when thrips land on something they are making the assumption that it is a plant, and so they are going to attempt to feed. And so, if they land on you, then it's going to be, Hey, this is a plant, I'm going to feed on it. And so, they jab their mouth parts into you. And depending on who you are and how sensitive you are, you may feel that, and it can cause some, you know, reddening, local swelling, maybe some itching or irritation, but they're not. Feeding on you. It's just them mistaking you for a plant.
2: Are they really jabbing mouth parts in you or are they more like scratching you with those mouth parts? I'm not quite sure how their mouth parts work, but I know, but in my mind, I've always thought of them as more of like a scratchy thing.
0: They're known to have rasping, sucking mouth parts. So I guess it's more like if you're rasping something, that's more kind of them
2: scraping the surface, right? Yeah. In my mind, that's how I've always envisioned it, but I don't know for sure. Which, oh, that's such a cute little
0: vision in my brain of the little <laughs> tiny thrips with this little mouth part and it's <laughs> It's so cute. I remember years ago, there was a news person here in the Central Texas area And she was contacting me and she had contacted pest control companies, everything. And she was being bitten by something every single time that she went out into her garden in the evening, like to kind of chill out and sit on the back patio. And she couldn't figure out what it was. And it turned out that she had rose bushes in there. Cause I was like, okay, so what is around your patio area? And she's like, well, I have some roses. And I was like, okay, stop, (laughs) we're gonna do this. I told her the whole paper thing and that's what it turned out to be. So she was being bitten by those thrips when she was sitting out there. And she obviously was reacting to it because she was having problems. So is he not feeling it? It all depends on how sensitive you are or maybe where they're biting or rasping you at. Because I mean, if you think about the skin on the underside of your arm versus the top of your arm, it's going to be way more sensitive on the underside. So you may react more depending on where they bite you. But then I also know that I am super sensitive to everything and I'll be bitten by something and Alan could be bitten by something that's exactly the
2: same and he has no clue. I I definitely feel them. I don't have a reaction like as in a little welt or like a, a mark that's ever left behind, but I certainly feel them. And I've noticed that they seem to be attracted to light clothes. Don't is it light or dark? I always actually get it confused. They like
0: light. So usually if you think about like flowers, if it's a flowery color, then they would like you. Yellow, orange, white, that sort of thing.
2: We had um, thrips coming out of who knows where, trees, whatever, you know. It was like May time and we'd had some rain and they were just really abundant. And we had a neighbor over and he was wearing a white t-shirt and he was so irritated by them dropping on him and biting him. And we were all kind of standing around him but he was the only one that was feeling it. And I am i would, if they were on me, I'm sure I would have felt it. And I told him to go home and he came back with a black t-shirt and he, they stopped. <laughs> oh, nice.
0: See, that, that. that is a great way. So if you're dealing with something like that, then change up what you're wearing to something that is more of a dark color. And of course, you know, that might attract something else that you don't want biting you, but you know,
2: so is life. <laughs> and don't use bug spray because because they're not blood feeding. Like the only thing, so like side note, we were at a softball tournament and a little girl on another team got stung by a bee and the mom started spraying her with bug spray. And I'm like, that's not going to actually keep any bees away from her. But that that made me realize that's what people think, you know, that, that bug spray repels all bugs, but it's actually only the blood suckers and things that bite and sting and don't want your blood are still going to come after you. Yeah. Right. And like,
0: The thrips are just attracted to you because of what you're wearing, those light colors, and they're thinking that you are a plant and they're rasping on you to see if you are a plant. Yeah. They're just curious. So as far as management, Molly, you talked about resistance to insecticides. Do you want to tell people a little bit about resistance and how that happens? Yeah.
2: So the, when you get resistance, you have, you know, if you think about thrips, you have all these thrips on a plant and you spray with something and nothing is going to kill a hundred percent of your insects in any situation. And so you've got, you know, 5%, 1% that's left behind that has some genetic benefit or leg up that allows them to overcome that pesticide. And that tiny percentage that survives is going to pass those genes on to its offspring. And so the more often you spray, spray, spray with the exact same thing, you select for those insects that don't die from that pesticide. And then before you know it, you've got the whole population of thrips that aren't going to be killed by that, you know, rose thrips killer that you buy every single year at the, at the hardware store.
0: I need to go back though, because I I said, let's talk about control, but I didn't talk about what damage they do other than transferring or vectoring viruses. So with thrips, they, like I said, they damage or feed on fruit. They can damage the leaves that they're doing, but The good thing, I guess, about them is that they rarely will kill or really cause enough damage to the plant itself, unless they are vectoring some sort of a virus, then that can lead to major issues. But typically when we have just regular feeding on a plant, They can stunt the growth of the plant. They can cause distortion of the foliage because if they're destroying or damaging part of the leaf as it's still growing, because they do tend to go towards new growth. That's kind of their jam. That's what they like. So if they're feeding on that as it's growing, when those cells are damaged, they're not going to grow properly anymore. And so that plant can then become distorted in that area. There are some that cause the foliage to turn this almost dried out kind of papery texture. So if you touch the leaf that has been damaged, it just like crumbles underneath your hand. There also can be stippling where you have these little kind of pale spots that will be on the leaf surface. And then, you know, depending on where they are, if you're talking about flowers, like on a rose or a hibiscus or something, a lot of times, if you have thrips infesting those, they'll get into that flower bud before it opens. And when it opens up, it will already have browning on it from where the thrips was feeding. And so that can cause definitely some issues because I know a lot of people get very upset when their roses are just first opening and it's already damaged that could be very frustrating
2: the reason why you plant roses in my opinion is to cut them usually or have something that looks pretty in your landscape but also cut them and put them on your table and they'll cause that bud to like it's almost like it never quite opens or it like balls up in a fist and you can you I can tell at least you I think anybody can you can tell it's not quite right from the very very get-go yeah, I always tell people it's like a thrips ball because they are wedged into those folds and deep down and feeding on that pollen and, and there's tons of them in there. So if you don't cut those and remove them and you allow them to open up, then you just you have thrips exploding all over your other buds.
0: Yeah, and and that's an actually a good way to manage them, especially when you're dealing with roses, is to prune. Those infested buds or heads or flowers off of the plant. You don't want to prune the plant back heavily where you're getting a lot of the foliage because that's going to cause the plant to shoot out a bunch of new growth, which will just be more yummy food for the thrips. But if you cut off the flowers and dispose of them, that can actually be a way of managing them without pesticides. So that can definitely work. And again, you know, don't throw them in the compost pile. You want to get them out of there.
2: That's exactly what I was going to say. Disposing does not mean just drop them on the ground or yeah, throw them in the compost pile. Put them in a bag, tie up the bag, throw them in the trash, or burn them. Whatever you want to do. Well, don't burn them right now. No, not right now for sure.
0: <laughs> so, like I mentioned, there are predatory thrips, but we also have other insects that may feed on the thrips that feed on your plants. Things like green lacewings. Different types of mites. Of course, there are parasitic wasps that will feed on them. Um, We also have minute pirate bugs, which, you know, a lot of times people think that those are chinch bugs, but chinch bugs are in turf and minute pirate bugs are up on plants. So, not that I'm saying go out and buy these beneficial organisms and release them, but you do want to try to conserve them as much as you have in the environment. So, If you're choosing to do something, try to do something that is going to be a low impact, that it can help you manage the thrips, but it's going to conserve those beneficials. So what Molly said by cutting off the flower heads and disposing of them, that could be something that would definitely fit into that category. Cultural control, kind of avoiding them in the first place. A lot of times they will come out of uh, real weedy areas, especially especially like right now when everything is dry, when stuff starts to kind of dry out in the summertime, then they will move into landscapes and gardens, which everything's dry right now. But if you imagine an area that is watered, like it's on a irrigation system and then it's buy an area like a green belt or something that is more natural and it doesn't have that irrigation, as that stuff in the green belt starts to dry out, those thrips are going to move into the more lush vegetation that is getting that irrigation. And so if you can reduce those dry environments that have weeds or whatever, that can help. Making sure that you keep your plants in your landscape healthy by fertilizing, watering properly, pruning at the right time of the year. And notice that I did say fertilize properly. I didn't say just fertilize. (laughs) Make sure that you're not over applying, but you're not under applying and you can get a soil test if you need to.
2: Don't thrips tend to thrive and just produce populations increase when you have excess? I can't remember if it's excess nitrogen or phosphorus, but I think that it's
0: one. nitrogen. Okay. Because if you think about it, when you put a lot of nitrogen down on something, if you put too much, this is why it's important to know what you need. If you put down that nitrogen, that is going to cause that plant to just be like, oh, hey, there's all this stuff. And so it puts out this flush of foliage. And then that is where the thrips are going to go crazy. So they love that new, really tender stuff. And so they're going to be going bananas on that. So that's why you really got to watch the fertilizer that you're dealing with and making sure that you're doing that properly and with the right amount. So it may be you do need a soil test and kind of get those results to figure out what you need. Row cover is an option depending on your landscape. Essentially, that is going to physically block not only thrips, but other insects from certain types of plants that are covered with that row cover. Obviously, you're not going to cover your roses with that. That Oh, God, I can't even imagine trying to do that. But if you have them on, like you're trying to avoid tomato spotted wilt virus and you may have the thrips in the area, you could cover the tomato plants with the row covers. That way they're not going to be uh, vectoring that disease to the plant. So the only thing, if you are using a row cover and you're having a plant that needs To be pollinated by insects, you are going to have to cover or uncover that plant when it is in bloom. So just be aware of that situation. Something else that everybody always questions me about, but it can work, it's just, I guess, not as popular here as other places, is reflective mulch. And essentially reflective mulch, it reminds me of, I guess, emergency blankets that you can buy like, and throw in your car. It's kind of just a shiny surface of a flexible material and you lay it down And typically I recommend that you lay it down before you plant stuff again, like tomatoes. So you'd poke a hole in it, plant your little transplant in there. And then as it grows, the light is going to be reflecting off of that reflective mulch. And that can actually delay or reduce the numbers of insects that get onto those particular plants. And apparently it's because the, which this, this was new to me. I, I did not know that it was this, but the mulch or the reflective mulch reflects the light, obviously, but it interferes with the insect's ability to locate the plants. So I always thought that it was making the undersurface of the leaf less habitable for things like white flies or aphids or thrips or things like that but apparently I was incorrect it may have something to do with that but apparently the main thing is that it doesn't make it as easy for them to locate those plants
2: do you have you ever seen those in the nursery because that's something that I've definitely recommended before also and it's and I hate the name of it because it's not mulch it's it's yeah. a plastic sheet essentially yeah. you know but I don't know if I've, ever seen it, if I've ever seen it in a nursery. I have
0: never seen it in a nursery around here. I know you can buy rolls of it online, but I cannot imagine shipping cost on that. I don't know. I haven't looked into it. In my opinion, it looks just like an emergency blanket that you can go to like any store that has a camping section and buy one of those little plastic emergency blankets and you can stick that out. Ooh, that gives me an idea for a study, like use an emergency blanket versus like true reflective mulch and then see which one works or doesn't work. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Oh, chemical control. Of course. So usually with thrips, while damage can be ugly or whatever, you, you can prune that damage off and get rid of it that way. So, typically in your normal landscape, you really don't need to use pesticide for killing them. You can do the pruning of the the flowers. And, like I mentioned numerous times before, thrips tend to go for that new, tender growth. So, as the plant matures and gets bigger, they're not going to be feeding on that stuff. And so, that kind of the plant can outgrow the thrips damage. And so at some point, it's going to get past where you would really see something. So you really don't need to necessarily treat with some sort of a pesticide. But when you would really want to focus on possibly using a pesticide is if you had that plant virus transmission going on. And unfortunately, all it takes really is one infected thrips to infect a plant with a virus. So it may be that those insecticides don't work quickly enough for you to really manage that by the time that you find out. So if you know that you've had problems in the past, it may be that you want to start out with a row cover That way you can avoid that vectoring of the viruses before it becomes an issue in the first place. So I think generally with my stuff, and I don't know, you guys may do something different. If I'm not just doing the pruning, because like I said, they get on my roses. I typically just prune off the damaged weird flower things. If I don't do that, then I tend to hit with insecticidal soap. That way I can try to conserve any beneficials that are in the area because it doesn't have that real long residual.
1: Same. I have a fun fact. So I was also reading a little bit. We're talking a lot about pests. Obviously, these are pests, but apparently in 2001, there was like a symposia on thrips. (laughs) I'm going to get crazy right now. So some of the authors on this paper believe, or they suspect that grips actually were among the first insects to evolve these like pollinating relationships with host plants. So there's specific species that play like a crucial role in pollination of specific chili peppers. And I was looking at beets just now. So kind of relating to, to, you know, the plant will outgrow the damage even if they're present. I mean, that's also, maybe there's also a benefit to that, right?
0: Right. So like like I said, you know, just because it's their feeding on the plant, if they're not in high enough numbers or they're not causing damage, is that really a problem? Probably not. And with that information, I mean, they might actually be doing something beneficial as well, right?
1: I guess it just depends on the species.
0: Yep. We've been saying that a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's there's too many special, yeah, instances in the insect world, I feel.
0: This is for kind of like an average home gardener that we've been talking about. There are thrips that will become a problem in greenhouses of growers and that obviously can be more problematic. Those typically can be controlled with an application of the horticultural oil, or maybe a botanical of some sort, like pyrethrins, or you could do insecticidal soaps, like I mentioned earlier, but you may need multiple applications. But if you are doing that, remember what Molly said about the resistance buildup. So if you're doing repeated applications in a greenhouse for thrips, because you're a grower, Make sure that you're switching up what you're doing and not just like, oh, I'm using a pyrethrins this time and now I'm using a pyrethrum. Those are essentially the same thing. You want to switch the way that that chemical kills the insect. That way they're not building up that resistance. So maybe use a horticultural oil, then use an insecticidal soap, then use a pyrethrins, and that can help reduce that possibility of resistance.
2: You know, at the, this week, Lizzie and I were both at the Texas Nursery Landscape Association uh, conference, and I was talking to one of our really good horticulturists, um, Skip Richter, and he was, we were talking about thrips actually, and he was saying that a lot of people, especially rose growers, will use spinosad for thrips, and it works well, but resistance happens super fast with that for some reason, and it might be because people think, uh, well, it's organic, I can use a whole lot of it. Or on the label, maybe it allows you to come back in and retreat pretty quickly. I thought that was kind of interesting that, and kind of made me think like, why is it that that one's more resistant than maybe that they gain resistance more quickly than other things. Um, but I think it's because like you were saying earlier, it's what's handy. It's what's available. And, and then, you know, again, we, I think that we think organic is always better, but you can still get resistance and it, you know, so that's just something food for thought, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you want more information on pesticides, please tune in to our podcast after this one, because we will be talking about the history of pesticides. But when you're using pesticides, please, please remember that they are all meant to kill. So you do need to use them with caution, regardless of whether they are organic or naturally derived or whatever. And you also, it's good to have information to know if it's a broad spectrum or not. If you think about insecticidal soap or you think about horticultural oils, or if you, even the pyrethrins. So the three that I listed while those are all low impact or less toxic, or you know, those are pretty much all naturally derived somewhat, they're all broad spectrum. So they can kill off beneficial insects as well as those pest ones. And so you still need to target your treatment and you still need to make sure that you are using things in the proper manner according to the labeled instructions. So on that note, I'm going to sign us off for this week and we will catch you next time on Bugs by the Yard.
1: Howdy to our listeners and fellow bug nerds. We want to take the time to tell you to check out our show notes on each episode and for more information and supplemental materials on the topics covered. Additionally, if you have any questions or recommendations for what you may want to learn more about, you can send us an email to www.bugsbytheyard at gmail.com. If you enjoy this content and would like to learn more about structural pests that may invade your home, check out our other podcasts, Unwanted Guests, brought to you by Texas A&M University AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology. As always, please subscribe or follow the podcast feed to make sure you never miss an episode.